Welcome to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church in Donaldson, Arkansas. This is Elder Dan Sammons preaching in our regular Sunday morning service. I appreciate that opening prayer and the song service, even though I, I struggled <laughs> being both a leader and a participant in it. I appreciated it nonetheless. I'm thankful to be in the Lord's house. You know, I mean, I've seen people put things on Facebook that are like, the worst day fishing is better than the best day at work, you know, and that's, that's probably true, actually. But I think in many instances, the worst days of being in the Lord's house are better than all sorts of carnal things that we might otherwise be pursuing. And so you got to take the good with the bad, right? You know, in our own families, in our material or natural families, we realize there's good and bad that comes with dealing with a family. And every day in the Lord's house is not going to be just this incredible spiritual experience where you're shouting hallelujah and you thought you understood everything that was preached and you agreed with it and all that. There's going to be days where it feels like you're really pushing through, you know, a tough spot. You're trying to struggling through a swamp or something. So uh, you got to take the good with the bad. And we're hoping the Lord's going to bless us with some good here in spite of all the bad I appear to be bringing into the pulpit today. We are in the second epistle of Peter. And... I asked the question last Sunday, got faith? Have you got faith? I mentioned the milk campaign, Got Milk, that was so popular years ago, where they'd show famous people with the milk mustache and how that was kind of clever and got people thinking about, well, do I have milk? I've got those cookies in the, in the pantry. I better get some milk or I'm going to be in trouble at some point. Peter asked the question, got faith, or he raises the issue, rather. I'm asking the question, but he raises the issue. And I made the point last time on this got faith issue that many Christian groups sort of orient themselves around the idea of we need to preach to people so that they might get faith and be eternally saved. That's kind of it's an oversimplification, but that's kind of a philosophy of ministry that's very prevalent out there in Christianity today. And along the lines of Elder Phelan's five primitive Baptist distinctives, this would, you could add this one as a sixth, right? Getting people faith is not the objective of what we're doing in gospel ministry. We are trying to speak to those who have faith. And that's what Peter is saying here. So you got faith, you've got faith, you believe these things, that's where it starts. Now, having faith, you ought to add to your faith a whole bunch of things. And that's really the verses we're looking at. Last time we looked at a few of the things that we're going to add. We didn't get through all of them. The full list is virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness, and charity. Those things ought to be some of the descriptions of Christian people, or at least of mature, obedient Christian people. Now, some of those things may not always describe you and always describe me, and to the extent that they don't, we're deficient. We have not added to our faith the things that Peter says you need to be adding to your faith. So those are the things I think last time we looked at virtue, knowledge, and temperance and talked about those a little bit. So we'll try to drill into the others today, starting with patience. But before I do that, I had this thought as I was pondering this concept so you've got virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness, and charity. And those are things you're supposed to add to your faith. So if you believe, you believe what God says about himself in the Word, you believe what you're admonished to do, 
then you are supposed to be trying to add these things to your faith. Now, some of them are fruits of the Spirit, like temperance, so you have them in a form, so to speak, but maybe you need to cultivate your use of them, right? You can ignore your capacity to do something to such an extent that it atrophies and it's as though you don't have it at all, right? This is why you have physical therapy and things like that when people have a knee surgery. We've had several people who've had knee surgeries and stuff like that. Well, if you take that and you just say, well, I'm just going to sit down because it hurts to walk, it's entirely possible that all the work they did on that knee is not going to give you any benefit because you're going to sit there and let it atrophy. And then in terms of the physicality of your knee, it's got the ability to hold your weight and do all sorts of things. But if you ignore it for so long, you may get to the point where it's not useful anymore. My knee's stiff. I can't hardly do anything. And it's that way, I think, as well with the fruit of the Spirit that we have. We can ignore the exercise of the spiritual capacities we have to such a degree that they begin to atrophy and become unprofitable. And then they may be hard to get working again, right? So... It's best to stay up to speed on exercising those various attributes. But I thought about, what if you turn this around, right? What if you have faith and you say, okay, I've got faith. I'm a believer, but I'm not going to add any virtue. I'm faith without virtue. Now, evidently, I think to God's people, that doesn't really make any sense. But there's a term for that. We've talked about it before from this pulpit, and you hear people discuss it in theological circles or in preaching circles. That's what I would call antinomianism is the formal term. You have faith without virtue. You're saying it's all just a matter of what I believe about the great truths of the Bible, but how I live doesn't matter at all. I have no virtue in how I conduct myself. I'm not cultivating any of that because how I live is not going to determine whether or not I'm going to heaven or not, right? So therefore, I'm just going to have faith and no virtue. Antinomianism is what that is, and you see that out in the world. What if you got faith and you say, well, I've got faith, and this is a really prominent one. I've got faith, but I don't want any knowledge. This is really prominent. A lot of Christian churches are out there. They want to do the big hoopla over faith and lots about the belief, but we don't want to get into doctrine. We don't want to talk about knowledge. I don't really want to learn anything. I just want to come in here and feel some stuff, crank up the music, let me feel it. But I don't want the knowledge because knowledge... And doctrine starts pressing into your life and starts making you have to change the way you think about things from the carnal mind. That's why people resist it. But what's that called? It's very prevalent. I have faith, but I don't want knowledge. I don't want to add knowledge. I don't want want to open the Bible. I want to spend more time singing the same mantras over and over again, some silly praise song, same line repeated 30 minutes long. That sort of stuff is faith without knowledge And what is that called? That's called mysticism, is really what it is. It's like my religion is about what I'm going to feel about stuff. And by the way, you can't question my feelings, right? My feelings are my own. And you can't question my experience and my feelings in things. Religion becomes a very personal thing. Now, it is a personal thing, but Christianity is a faith that is shared among the saints, and it's oriented around the singular truths and doctrines of the Bible. And to know that, you've got to acquire some knowledge. As we've said many times before, just being regenerated does not pour 66 books of rightly divided doctrine 
an orthodoxy into your head. It just doesn't. Being regenerated gives you the capacity of faith. And Peter says, add to your faith knowledge. If you don't do that, you're dwelling in a form of Christianity that is just mysticism. It's all about my experiences. I don't really care what the Word of God says. I just believe and trust God, and I don't want to look at all those other things. I just want to feel a bunch of things. Well, let me tell you this. Your feelings are a terrible guide for your life. Amen. They are a terrible guide for your life. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't have good feelings at times that would incline you to do something. That's good. To the extent that you have good feelings and you follow those good feelings and they're an inclination of the Spirit, that's good. But what I'm telling you is that if you look at the sum total of the domain of feelings that you experience, I suspect that a great many of them, if you go through there and winnowing through them and setting the good from the evil, you're going to find that a lot of your feelings on things arise from the carnal mind and not from a spiritual source. So how we feel about stuff. I'll th- I give you an example in my own life. I tend to be short. I come to quick conclusions and I want to respond quickly. That is pretty much my carnal mind being expressed. We're going to get to, you know, the next thing I got to deal with is patience here. So I'm just trying to be honest. Recognizing that about myself may help me to slow my, my game a little bit. Okay, I need to stop. Maybe I need to be slow to speak instead of so quick to speak. Because I realize that what I say quickly a lot of times is often a produce of my carnal mind rather than something that's spiritual. Now, that's helpful to know that. Knowing it is adding knowledge to your faith. But putting it in practice is adding some patience to your faith. You see what I'm saying? So we've got to add things to our faith. And if we're not adding knowledge, we're just dwelling in the realm of mysticism. And that's just foolishness. There's really few things that the devil could do to a regenerate person that would be more harmful to them than to convince them that the Word of God is really not profitable to your life. If the devil can convince you, just go with your feelings, man. Just go with your feelings. All that doctrine stuff just gets people arguing, and it's complicated. And, you know, the Bible's difficult. Who can understand it anyway? I mean, you you can waste all this time studying something you can't understand anyway. It's not going to be profitable to you. Just let yourself feel your religion. When the devil downgrades the value of the Word of God in your mind, you're headed down a terrible road. The devil cannot prevent God from regenerating his people. He can't do it. That tool is not in his arsenal. Neither can he unregenerate people. God gives unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. It's not like he gave it to them and the devil's going to come and try to take it away from them. That can't happen. But what can the devil do? The devil can rob you of many of the things that would dramatically improve your Christian walk and your experience and your profitability within the kingdom of God. That the devil most certainly can do. And all he has to do to make it happen is tickle your carnal mind. That's all he's got to do. It's there and he can take advantage of that. One of the main ways he does it 
You wonder why Christianity is so downgraded in our society? Well, it's gone along the way of the Bible being tremendously downgraded in our society. It's astonishing to me that our grade school educated grandparents could read the King James Bible without any trouble and understand what it meant. Yet our grad school educated children have to have some newer translation that puts it in their language. Right? You follow me on that? That's ridiculous. Why did all that happen? A lot of that happened because people said, well, you know, you really can't understand the Bible, so we need to redo it. The Bible's a do-over, right? The Bible served God's people for hundreds and hundreds of years. I'm confident in the testimony of the Bible, and yet we find many different efforts to try to downgrade the Bible and try to put something between you and the Bible, whether it's your experiences or your entertainments or whatever. But the Bible is tremendously profitable to God's people, and you will profit from it to the extent that you press into it, and one of the ways you press into it is by being involved in the kingdom of God and knowing that I have faith, i got to add some knowledge to it, and the knowledge comes from the Bible. Okay? This is not, as some religious orders say, this is not furniture. Okay? This is not some prop we put up here. Oh, look, it's a church. We better put a Bible up there, because that, isn't that what a church is supposed to have? That's part of the furniture. No, it's not that. This is the Word of God. This is what we're oriented around. This is how we add knowledge to our faith. And those who are, have moved away from that and downgraded the notion of knowledge, downgraded the notion of the Bible, they've really just downgraded the value of Christianity in society. So, very important that we know that. I thought about a few others of these. I think also that If you have faith without temperance, that's another form of antinomianism, I would say. Faith without patience. Trying to think of a good term for each of these. This one applies to me because I'm impatient at times. Faith without patience is arrogance. When you presume to immediately have the answer to every single thing, no matter how esoteric or difficult the topic may be or complex, that is an impatience that's, that is not recognizing that there's something, there's more I need to consider here. And the arrogance of saying, I'm going to assert that I just know this. I feel like I'm pretty intuitive in terms of coming to quick judgments. They're not always wrong. So that might, might be a bad thing. Like if all my quick judgments were always wrong, <laughs> then I might have a data set that said, look at how many times, I just get it wrong every time. I need to stop doing that. But I'm right. Some of the times, right? That's like a gambling addiction. You know what I'm saying? Like, you ever talk to people who, who have gotten into gambling and they say, well, you know, I was up. All you hear about, I was up, I was up. Well, I lost a little, but I, I actually came out with a little bit. Well, statistically, that's not even possible. The odds are tilted towards the house. And if you play long enough, you never hear people saying, I went and lost and lost and lost and lost. You never hear that. And the same thing happens in our own lives as we kind of reinterpret our judgments about things. Our judgments, in hindsight, probably seem better than they were in the moment. And if we're right a lot of times, sometimes we justify the times that we were wrong because we think, well, well, I'm usually right. So this is an important thing to recognize. We'll talk about some of the other ones, if you, but I'm not going to get to patience if I keep going down that road. So let's go back to uh, the second epistle of Peter. And we're in chapter 1, and this is the text that we have under consideration. Verse 5, And besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith, 
virtue, and to virtue, knowledge, and to knowledge, temperance, and to temperance, patience, and to patience, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, that knowledge component is something you're supposed to add to your faith. You're adding it to your virtue, but virtue was added to faith. That's why I'm tying it back to faith. So technically it's added to your virtue, but since it's all part of a chain, right, you're adding to your faith. And it says that there's a purpose in this, for if these things be in you. Well, I think that's implicit that they may not be in you. If they be in you, in other words, if you are doing those things and adding these things to your faith and abound, not like occasionally in you. Well, on Wednesday, I was like that, but the other six days a week, not so much. So consistently and aboundingly in you, they make you that you shall neither be barren or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there is a purpose here, and the purpose is not to go to heaven. One of our distinctives, right? The purpose is fruit-bearing. Follow that? It's to be fruitful in the kingdom of God. Now, many of you have gardens, and you grow things, and you spend a lot of time out there. You do a lot of effort on it. You're working on this stuff. And I submit that if that activity produced no fruit, you would probably stop doing it. Maybe you do one season and be like, I got nothing out of the garden this year. And the next season, and you got nothing out of the garden, you'd probably say, this is unfruitful. I don't want anything to do with this anymore, right? We know that. But we mustn't downgrade our Christian faith to such an extent where we say, I'm going to be unfruitful in the kingdom of God. I'm kind of still going to be involved in the kingdom. I'm in the kingdom, but I'm unfruitful. And let that situation persist. A good gardener who's seeing something that is going to be unfruitful or some plant that's not doing very well, they start trying to do the diagnostics on that, right? They start saying, well, this might not, maybe this isn't getting enough nitrogen, or this is getting too much sun, or right? this has got too little water, or whatever. They start trying to play around with the elements that could actually produce fruit. And so it is in the kingdom of God, as you need to produce fruit. And instead of nitrogen and water and sunshine, the things that you might need to be messing with and adding, you might need to be adding virtue and knowledge and patience, right? These are the things that you might need to be thinking, my my spiritual life seems a little malnourished right now. Well, we know how to make the tomatoes grow, right? We know how to change things to improve that situation. These are the sort of things you focus on from a spiritual perspective to produce spiritual fruit. So if you find that you're barren in terms of your spiritual production, this is kind of where you work in the garden of the kingdom of God on that issue. So virtue, knowledge, and temperance, and now we're taking up patience. Now, patience is a must for ministering to others. Look at 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26. Now, this is part of the qualifications for elder, and it says, And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. 
Now, that is specifically sort of in the domain of requirements for being an elder. But that does not mean it has zero application to your life, right? It's talking about spiritual instruction here and trying to teach others. And every one of us has some manner of a teaching role, if only just in how you live your life and how you represent your faith before others. If you're going to have conversations with people about what you believe and you're going to represent the faith in that respect, I'm talking about just personal relationships with people you know who are not members of the church or maybe they go to some other church or whatever. These attributes still apply there. And this application that's in the context of the elder, I think, is very helpful. It says, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves... This is what we encounter a lot of times when we interact with people in our day-to-day lives. It could be at work, at the store, or maybe it's on social media or whatever. You You encounter people who have different opinions, and emotions tend to run high in the domain of religion. People get a little squirrely about religion, right? One of the things I think and in fact, I intend to, I've got the notes on it, but I haven't written it yet. I, I intend to write an essay on the notion of we disagree. One of the troubling aspects of our society and the way we're barreling towards nonsense is in our inability to manage disagreement. The reality is we live in this pluralistic society with people of all kinds of different viewpoints about all sorts of things. We disagree with one another wildly. It's not just, you know, Christians versus Muslims or, you know, all the different factions that you could draw up. Even within Christianity, you've got all these different denominations. Can we not step back from this and just say, look, we disagree, okay? We may not talk about that very much, But it's an evident reality, and none of us are really losing a whole lot of sleep over it, so it's not that big a deal. Can we not figure out a way to dialogue about our disagreements? I mean, I'll say this. If we, the primitive Baptists, are wrong about something, and you can bring me the Bible and show me this is where you're wrong about this, you should do this differently, we ought to do that. Right? I'll give you an example. Rather than have this be abstract, the church is supposed to have a plurality of elders. That's just a fact of the Bible. That's what we're supposed to have. And most primitive Baptist churches do not have that. Now, I know there's all sorts of reasons why they don't. Maybe we don't have enough elders or whatever. But that doesn't change the fact that a plurality of elders is the New Testament model. That is the primitive practice, period, end of story. And to the extent that you're not conforming to that, you are out of conformity with the primitive practice, okay? Maybe many reasons for that, but that is the truth, okay? When people point that out to us, you can't step back and start, well, we've never done that. We, we haven't had anything but one elder in our church for 100 years. Well, that just means you have not conformed to the biblical model for more than 100 years, right? You can't rain contempt on the model. This is the model. Primitive is here. It's not whatever we've done or codified in our rules or whatever because those things can be wrong. So to the extent that we disagree on things and to the extent that you can foster the ability to talk about them 
in a rational and dispassionate fashion, being very clear about why you believe what you believe, maybe you can get to a place where you could start talking through these things. Maybe we can be corrected on some things. Maybe we can correct others on things. But we shouldn't be shocked and appalled at the idea that we disagree, right? I've written many articles online of things that we disagree with other Christians on. And oftentimes you get vilified for that. They come in and oh, you're attacking this person. Why are you attacking the man of God and all these sorts of things? But it's evident that we disagree. Can we not talk about what we disagree on? And by the way, I don't hate anybody that disagrees with us. I've been one of them, right? So I, I don't hate anybody that disagrees with us. I would love to have those conversations. But I think we can do a lot in the domain of patience with respect to making those conversations easier. One of the reasons people in our society say, you know, don't talk about politics or religion is because those conversations are so apt to jump the rails. And you've got people out there in all kinds of wacky forms of Christianity. They think if you don't believe exactly like us, you're going straight to hell, right? Now, that makes the stakes pretty high. When you're talking to somebody who believes that, and then you start saying, well, maybe you could see it this way. Well, I don't want to question that because I think I've got the keys to the kingdom here. I've got, the, I've got my situation squared away, so I'm going to heaven. And if you upset that apple cart, all of a sudden I think I'm going to hell. And primitive Baptists who would talk to people about that, they're not coming at it from that angle. We're coming at it from the angle of you've got faith. Let's add knowledge to our faith. And knowledge comes from doctrine. And you know what? Just because you don't know everything right, none of us do, that doesn't mean we think you're going to hell. doesn't mean that at all. I've thought about this a lot of times. If you have a child, a young child, and maybe you're a grandparent or whatever, and you're doting on your grandchildren or whatever, you give them some candy every once in a while, and they think, ooh, Grandpa gives me candy. Grandpa's always got candy in his pocket, you know. You're kind of giving them some candy. They think that's great, right? Some guy comes up to them on the playground who doesn't know them from Adam, and he's like, would you like some candy? Now, look, anybody of us that we're like, wait a minute, that is not good. That's some stranger danger right there. Not a good deal. Now, we know that because we've added some knowledge to what we know about children and what we know about the world. But a child who only knows the love they've had from their parent, they may associate that with just, that's what my grandpa does. This must be a nice person too, right? They don't know any better. That's all. They're just a child. They just haven't had this knowledge at it. They haven't had their parents say, look, I know I give you candy, and I know you're going to enjoy this candy here. Don't ever take candy from strangers. Anybody other than me or your mom and dad's trying to give you candy, you get away from them as quickly as you can and go tell somebody about it, right? When you teach a child like that, you're adding something. They have faith and confidence in you, right? They understand that relationship. They may project that onto people who have malevolence toward them. You know why they do that? Because they don't have any knowledge. But if you add some knowledge to that, I know you trust me. I know you have faith in me. I'm giving you some candy. I love you. But look, don't do this with other people. Don't go down that road. You may not understand it, but I'm giving you some knowledge that can inform what you do. I think we'd all have to agree that knowledge added to their faith in their parents would be tremendously profitable in certain circumstances, would it not? It's exactly the same way in the kingdom of God. 
You can have faith in God, have faith in your Father, and um, you got to add some knowledge to that, though, and that knowledge you add would be profitable. I can't seem to get off knowledge here. I'm going to go back to patience here. So this idea of being patient in ministering to others, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. That phrase is really important. And I've seen it in my own interactions with people. You want to have the right responses and maybe the logical argument from Scripture. And that, that's important. However, you can get wrapped up in playing with how nicely constructed your little logical argument was. And then when they don't accept it, you can take it as a personal affront that, well, I mean, my argument was so clear. They must be really stupid if they didn't follow that. I mean, I I just don't have any. But this should, first of all, that's a prideful way to be. I'm just calling it out because we experience it. If God, peradventure, will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. You've got to represent the truth, but you've got to free yourself from the idea that I am the one who is going to fix their little red wagon. Rather, we should focus on representing the truth clearly and accurately with concern for them, but in a dispassionate way, not in an accusatory way. Put it in front of them. And we've got the hope that God may reveal something to them in that. It's not based on how well you did. I've had people say things to me, honestly, uh, that were very poorly constructed. But I can tell you that in that moment, I was given something. I had a brother say to me one time, you know, faith is a fruit of the Spirit. That was all he said. It was in the context of a much broader conversation. And I felt like at that moment, The Lord gave me some repentance with respect to the way I was thinking about things. So it's a spiritual endeavor, and people are easily deceived. How many things have you been deceived in? You ever been deceived in your life? I mean, come on now. If if you've never been deceived, I I will vacate the pulpit and let you come up here and, and testify as to your total lack of deception over the course of your life. We've all been deceived at times. And maybe it helps us to be charitable when we recognize there's a lot of spiritual blindness in the world. There's a lot of people who are just blind to things. And we should try to put it out there in a loving way, as clearly as we possibly can. And maybe the Lord's going to bring them along that path. But don't, try not to become impatient with them. And I know that that can be difficult. Romans chapter 5 makes a statement about this. This is the unpleasant one. The old joke, I've probably told it before, the old joke was the guy going to his pastor and saying, you know, I just need, I just need more patience. And uh, he said, well, I understand that. Let's pray about it. So they got out on their knees and the pastor starts praying. <laughs> he says, Lord, I want you to bring some hard times on this brother. Just bear down on him with difficulty and worry and circumstances. And he's going down this list and... <laughs> You know, the guy says, look, I don't want any of that. I said I wanted patience. I want you to pray the Lord give me patience. And the pastor said, tribulation worketh patience. This is kind of one of those things you better be careful what you ask for. But to the extent that you've had tribulation in your life and suffering, that is there, one of its purposes is to foster the cultivation of patience in your life. And by the way, 
If you don't have tribulations and things you have to wait upon and things that you want but are not forthcoming, how are you ever going to develop any patience? If everything you want is immediately delivered to you like you're living in some five-star hotel on somebody else's credit card, how are you ever going to become patient about when dinner comes around? I'm going to have to wait till I get paid so I can go get something to eat. This is the principle that's taught here. Therefore, being justified by faith, that is knowing what God has done, we know that we're justified by Christ. The faith element is just our knowing that, right? So you got that faith in that. Add to, this is an add to your faith verse. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations. Jesus said you're going to have tribulation. In this world, you're going to have tribulation. How often are we glorying in them? Well, that's what, that's what our attitude is supposed to be. Knowing that tribulation worketh patience. Well, maybe that's the recipe. So I'll admit the default setting when you're going through a tribulation is not to say, I'm glorying in this. That's not where we are by default. But there's a promise in tribulation, is there not? First of all, there's the knowledge that you can have. Here's some knowledge. I'm going back to knowledge again. Jesus said tribulation worketh patience. So if you're going through a tribulation, you can say, Jesus was right. He told me this. My Lord told me it may not be pleasant, but he told me the truth. So there's one affirmation. That's one way knowledge can help you. We glory in tribulations also knowing that tribulation worketh patience. So as you're going through that tribulation, you're trying to deal with the difficulty and the unpleasantness in the moment. One of the ways that you can reassure yourself is that this is God working patience into my life. I need to recognize how this difficulty is helping me cultivate patience. So that when I encounter someone who's struggling with something and maybe not dealing with it the right way, and maybe they lash out at me, maybe I'm trying to share my faith and they say something nasty back to me, you could say, I'm going to be patient with this person. You don't really know what people are dealing with a lot of times. We've all dealt with difficult things. So having dealt with difficult things, you can begin being patient towards others as they're dealing in their difficult things. It goes on to say, And patience experience and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given to us. Now, there's another statement in Romans, chapter 15, verses 4 and 5. Now the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded one toward another according to Jesus Christ, that ye may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of patience. So God is patient. Children do not often recognize how patient their parents are with them. I'm sure you can think back in your days of raising children where you're thinking, my son or my daughter is just about on my last nerve. They're acting up. I'm trying not to overreact too quickly here, but my patience is beginning to wear thin. And we understand that. Those of us who have raised children, we see that. Children often don't see how their behavior is testing your patience. How much 
have you, child of God, tested God's patience in thought and in deed? I think if you do an examination over the course of your life of various sins, rebellions, foolishness that you have been involved with one way or another, you would have to conclude God has been extraordinarily patient with me. He is a God of patience. God is patient, so it's important that we be like Him in that regard. That leads to the next one, back in Second Peter, and to temperance patience and to patience godliness. Well, we said God is patient. So one of the ways that you begin to be more godly is in the expression of your patience, because patience is an attribute of God. So you can see how that leads into godliness in a broader sense, right? This term is related to the word that's used in Acts chapter 10 and verse 2. And we'll read that to you so you can kind of make that tie in your mind. Acts 10 is an oily page. We spent a fair amount of time camping out with Cornelius in the old Baptist church. So we ought to know this. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of the band called the Italian band, a devout man. That's the word that is very closely related to this idea of godliness in the underlying language. He was a devout man. And here's some attributes of his devoutness. One that feared God with all his house. A lot of times in modern society, we want to say, well, my religion is a personal thing. That's true in some respect. Your faith is your faith. You believe the things you believe. That's true, but it's not only a personal thing. This man was feared God with all his house. This is something that he is spreading beyond just my personal issue. I don't want to influence son. I don't want to influence your faith. You know, everybody's got their personal beliefs, and I don't want to influence that. No, apparently it was, we fear God. My house is going to be one that fears God. This is something that he's instilling in others. Which gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. So these are attributes of a devout man, of his godliness. His religion is something that he imports more broadly into his family. It's important to him. And it has effects in two very important areas, time and money. To the extent that your religion does not affect your time or your money, you're not exhibiting godliness. You know, we've been wise enough in our society to say things like, well, time is money, right? I mean, they're almost interchangeable, right? You can take time and use it to make money. You can take money and use it to acquire time, right? They're interchangeable on the market of human existence. But the two attributes here that are shown of Cornelius talk about his money and his time. Prayer takes time and alms take money. So that's something every Christian has to work out. What is it I'm bringing Lots of people get very uh, buggy about talking about your wallet. Brother Sonny wrote a book on you know, supporting the ministry. That's a, that is a tremendous effort on his part, by the way. 
very contrarian with respect to the way many primitive Baptist ministers speak. And I'll just put it bluntly. To the extent that they didn't preach on contributing to the ministry, they're not preaching the full counsel of God. And I'm thankful that Brother Sonny would step into that vacant space and say, look, here's what the Bible says. Who cares about your traditions? And while that's never the way we did it, this says you're supposed to support the ministry and it's in the Bible. That's the primitive practice. So you can take all this non-primitive primitive stuff and you can kick it to the curb because this is where the primitive comes from and that's what's important. So people get buggy about talking about your money, but we're supposed to be cheerful givers. And honestly, the time thing is more the issue. I thought about your book. I actually pulled it off the shelf the other day and was kind of looking through it. And it's all good and true, and and it's what's in the Bible about supporting the ministry financially. But I thought, maybe we need to write a second version of that, which is like supporting the ministry with time. Right? Time is money. Where's the time being put in? And time is what is being taxed for a lot of people. You hear everybody say, oh, I'm busy, I got this going on. And, and time is a precious asset that you've got to manage. And don't think the Lord doesn't want some of your time. He does. You're not to forsake the assembling of yourselves together, and there are many other ways that you serve in the kingdom of God that are going to take time. So, That's really important. So that's godliness. That's as much as I'll say on godliness. Brotherly kindness. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 2. I'll try to wrap this up quickly. We'll go through this quickly. Ephesians chapter 2, looking at brotherly kindness, chapter 2 and verse 7. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. This to me was a passage that speaks of, you know, Christ is your elder brother. This is the kindness he's extended to you. Think about the kindness of Christ towards His people. We have redemption. We've been redeemed by His blood. Greater love hath no man than this, and one give his life for another. That's what Jesus Christ did. There's the greatest act of kindness that has ever been visited upon this planet. And it was extended to a totally undeserving people such as us. That's brotherly kindness. I mean, we could go through many examples of what I might call lesser brotherly kindnesses, right? The Bible talks about people staying in your house and entertaining, having hospitality. Those are, those are brotherly kindness, but as I looked through some of those things, I thought, let's just take it to the pinnacle here. Our elder brother redeemed us by his blood. He gave his life for us. There's your act of kindness. There's where the bar is set. Now, all this other stuff is much lower, but that's what we set our eyes on, and I think that's very... Important. One of my favorite passages along that same thought is Titus chapter 3, starting in about verse 4. No, let me start in 3. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers' lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Every one of us has had some partaking in some of that list there. Previously, But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. You want to hear something about kindness? You're going to hear it right here. Now we said before this idea of redemption is this ultimate act of kindness. But here's another one that's coming from our Lord and our elder brother. Brotherly kindness. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, 
That takes every works-based system of salvation completely off the table. Period. End of story. Whatever is happening here, not by works of righteousness, which we have done. That's like a domino that gets knocked over. And thousands of different Christian doctrines out there across different denominations fall one after the other. You ever see those videos on YouTube where somebody spent 18 days setting up dominoes in a gymnasium so you can watch them all just tumble down? How much time did they spend doing that? Well, this is the first domino in the domain of Christianity that topples over lots of teachings that are out there about how men are saved. They're going to say you're saved as a result of works of righteousness, which you have done. You got to do this, that, or the other thing. This just knocks it over. Clean slate here. It's not any of that. So what's, what remains? Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. That's him saving us. We ain't got any participation in it because it's not by works of righteousness what we have done. By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. Immediate Holy Spirit regeneration. Right? Consider this. That's one of your distinctives, by the way. I was reading back through that. Immediate Holy Spirit regeneration. Well, if the gospel is instrumental in making people born again, there is some works of righteousness done by us that's involved in regeneration, are there not? Right? Some preacher had to get up and do a work of righteousness in preaching the gospel to you so that you could be regenerated. That would be a work of righteousness leading to the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. This says it's not by works of righteousness. That excludes the preacher's work of righteousness as well. That's because regeneration is immediate and it's direct. All right, let me see if I can cover charity. I got three minutes. I'm watching the, the, the clock. I got three minutes. This is pretty simple. John chapter 13. Jesus says this over and over and over again. You all have been here enough to know that charity is love. That word that we translate charity is a, one of the words for love. And charity implies love in action. It's not just the principle of love. I love in such a way that demonstrates that I love you through my actions, right? A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. It's one we need to be told over and over again. I'm thankful we're such a loving church. I feel like I don't have to remind us to love one another. I mean, we're a very loving church, and I appreciate that. And yet the Bible reminds us again and again. Turn over to chapter 15, verse 12. This is my commandment, that ye love one another. That's incredible, but look at the measure of love that's laid out here. I talked about brotherly kindness and its redemption and regeneration, what, what, the brother, what our elder brother has done for us. This is the commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. That's the example of charity and love that Jesus Christ had for us. Thank you for listening to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church. This has been Elder Dan Sammons preaching in one of our regular meetings. Come and join us as we worship God in the simplicity of Christ every Sunday morning at 416 North Hall Street in Donaldson, Arkansas. At Harmony. We don't have many things you'll find in the popular churches of our day, but we do have a successful Savior. We invite you to come and see.